Can one street tell China's story? Jonathan Chapman convinced me that it can. Chang'anjie, or Long Peace Street, Jonathan writes, is a geological core sample in which, just as each layer of the cylindrical rock relates the story of a physical era, so each intersection, each building, each sign and statue seem to have something to say about the decades of turbulence which begot modern China. In this episode, we'll be walking down this street. Jonathan, welcome to China Econ Talk. Morning, Jordan. It's great to be here. So first off, how'd you get this idea? I got the idea. I lived in, in Beijing just before the sort of Xi Jinping era kicked in. And I lived in an apartment a couple of blocks south, way out in the west uh, of Beijing, uh, just a couple of blocks to the south of Chang'anjie. And so I spent a lot of time traveling along it um, or underneath it, uh, Subway Line 1, which runs underneath it. And over the sort of first few months of living in the city, I came to realize that there was an incredible density of sites dotted along it. Um, some very well known, obviously, at the, at the center uh, of the city. It cuts between uh, Tiananmen Square and, and the Forbidden City. But then some less well known, so way out at the western edge, uh, the old Shogun Iron and Steel Works, which at that point had just uh, literally closed. Things like the Imperial Observatory, a little bit, a little bit further east from Tiananmen. So I kind of had this idea that uh, this could be a. Uh, my, my background is in travel writing, so I'm always sort of interested in, in potential journeys, and it struck me that this might be an interesting um, concept to follow up. I mean, the other thing that came to strike me about it was the irony of the streets name. My translation I, I talk in the book is is a bit of a literal kind of butchering of it in some ways. It's more commonly translated as, as the avenue of eternal peace. Um, but the first reason that I chose the title was because when I first started learning Chinese, there was uh, I had this CD and it would always use Long Peace Street as its like example when it was doing, <laughs> you know, uh, prepositions and stuff. Uh, and uh, sure. so I had... Oh, that's I, Kensler. I think I remember. Yeah, I think yeah, I yeah had exactly. This too. Yeah, that's, that's the one. Yeah. So I kind of, even before, I, I lived in other parts of China before I moved to Beijing. So I had in my mind Long Peace Street and then I was like, oh, this is, this is Long Peace Street. So that was one of the reasons. And the other one, it just had that sense of physical length, whereas obviously eternal doesn't quite capture that. And, and it is a long street. And, uh, you know, I walked it in two days. It's a, <laughs> about 20 miles and I did it in August. So it felt, it felt pretty long by the, by the end of it. But there was a central irony, I thought, to the name of the street. Um, the idea of it being a street of eternal peace or long peace, because it's been a site of all sorts of conflict and protest over over the years, and, and some very well known, and then other sorts of conflict about what kind of city Beijing is is becoming as well. So that was a sort of central idea that I thought the the street captured for me. Sure. How did you learn to write so good? <laughs> Um, well, that's very kind of you. Um, I mean, I approached the project from a slightly different angle, I suppose. I, I ended up in China slightly by accident. Um, and at the time, I was finishing off a book on the travel writer and novelist Bruce Chatwin, who um, I think has faded from the public consciousness a little bit now. He died in, in 1989, but was in his era sort of thought to be one of the, the greatest uh, of, of, of the 70s and 80s travel writers. Um, he wrote in Patagonia, which which redefined the genre. So I, my background was re sure. really studying uh, literature um, and particular tra travel literature. And, and so I suppose in the book, I was trying to channel some of that um, while simultaneously giving people who were uh, new to China or had a sort of general interest in China, a slightly more accessible way of understanding the history of, of the last 110 10 years or so. Okay, but that's not the answer. I mean, is there like a, is there like a method? Or do do you write poems in your spare time? I mean, just from the just from the little, um, you know, the little the little snippet I think I read in the intro gives people a bit of a sense of you know the the, the sort of depth and color that goes into this. Um, I if I wrote the book about Chang'anjie, it would not be nearly as um, it's not it's not flowery. It's just like. Every once in a while, you like go for it, and I would say two thirds of the time it lands, and that's much better than like. I mean, there's two ways it can be really bad. You can like go for it all the time and have me rolling my eyes, or just like never go for it, and then you just write it really dry and straight, and that 
leaves you a little, uh, you end up a little underwhelmed. So, you know, when you, when you try to push your writing to the, to the next level, like what do you see that in the moment? Is that through revisions? What kind of gets you to the, the, the passages that really stick out? Yeah, I think it's, it's a fine balancing act. Um, part of the aim of me writing it was to give a sense of moving through the city on the two days that I walked it. Um, and you know, one of the things that I love about traveling in China is, is the, just the physical experience of being on the ground and encountering new and familiar aspects of, of, of the place. Um, and I wanted to try and capture that. I think you're right. I think the danger is you can come across as quite pretentious as if you're having this sort of profound aesthetic experience as you move through. And of course, the, I mean, the other danger is, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm a British guy, you know, in, in a country that's not my own. And I'm very conscious that I'm, I don't want to claim some sort of special insight into uh, Beijing. So, yeah, I think the answer actually is probably re- revision. There were, there were times where I would, I would know that I wanted a sort of longer, more lyrical passage, and I would sit down with that in mind. But it would generally take then quite a long, a long time for me to hone it into something that I didn't find really cringy to to, to read back. So yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's something that that I didn't feel uh, every passage. You know, I don't go back and look at the book and think, oh, you know, I really nailed it all the way through. But I think there's enough there that I feel that it did give a, a sense of my own individual experience. And that was really what I was aiming for, I guess. So I have a bad habit. And actually, I don't know if it's a bad habit. But on occasion, when I'm walking around in China or in a or in a new city in particular, like I'd spend a whole day walking, but most of the time I'd actually spend it with earbuds in. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, I do that telling myself, oh, like I'm listening to this new podcast. I have this book I'm listening to, or I listen to these Chinese podcasts. And then I feel like I'm learning Chinese. So it's like really a thing I should be doing. But on the other hand, I feel like the sort of stuff that you end up picking up when you take the earbuds out of your ears, um, particularly if you can speak some Chinese, uh, it really gives you like just so many more levels of uh, exposure that it's a real tension because like I have this I have this like urge of a you know millennial in 2019 that every minute I have to be using <laughs> my life towards something like productive, yeah. but at the same time, you know, there's there's something really valuable I think in this sort of just experiential learning, um, just kind of wandering aimlessly particularly when it's somewhere that's so new and foreign and that experience your book captured very well yeah and i, I think that my, I, michael meyer in, in one of his books he talks about you know his strategy when he is sort of wandering around and he's not quite sure you know he's looking for something or not quite sure what to do next in china and he just will stop and you know you can guarantee within a few minutes someone will come and, and sort of talk to you and i think that's true yeah. that i think yeah the, the downside of, of walking around um on your smartphone i mean you know it's it's you get on the beijing subway and, and everybody's looking at their smartphones aren't they but all having headphones in is that you are you know isolated from the world but also you're you're kind of putting up a barrier that says i'm not accessible to people who might come and yeah. just randomly uh, talk to you so i tried to be open to those encounters i think one of the things i was wary about was um turning the book into a sort of series of, of vox pops um along changanjie you know sort of random people that i met um i'm a little bit skeptical about yeah. that as an as an approach um i think particularly over the last few years having watched in britain sort of foreign journalists come to england and you know the new york times sends them up to some some awful northern uh, ex-industrial town and gets them to go and interview people on the street i'm not sure quite how much we're learning about uh, Britain as a whole. And so I think extrapolating from those single, single data points is, is a bit, is a bit troubling. So I tried to stay away from, from that as much as possible. Sure. I mean, I guess what I'm, what I'm indexing on is like, I spent the past week in Guangzhou and walking around, just like hearing another accent and was, was just so, uh, you know, it just opens your mind up. Um, and it's a really, it's, it's something you don't like internalize until it's hitting you. And I think walking around with headphones on of my like, Beijing <laughs> podcast hosts talking about movies or yeah. whatever. You know, you, you don't quite get the you don't quite get the yeah, feeling. So, um, but anyways, all right, let's back to your book. Yeah, I was just going to say so much of, of China, uh, the, the, the sound is so important. It's a noisy place, right? So, you, you, yeah, you do lose that. Was it easy to decide which direction you were going to go? Um, like west to east, you mean? Or Yeah. No, not really. I mean, I, I wanted to start at the Shogun, which is the Iron Steelworks way out, way out in the West. And uh, to some extent, I mean, the book is weighted to some extent in this direction. Anyway, the West is kind of more interesting than the East because most of what's uh, in the yeah. East 
outside where the old walls used to run is is very new um, and not particularly. I mean, there are exceptions to this, but not particularly um, interesting. So I kind of knew that I wanted to front load it in a way with with the with the Western, um, you know, the, the Western part of Beijing had um, a diff, very different tradition to the East. The East was where people would come to town, um, you know, visitors would arrive in the city generally from from the East along that road from Tongzhou, and whereas the West was generally associated with the sort of more spiritual aspects of life and obviously journeys to the Western Hills. So it, mm. there is a you know, there's lots of um, mythology around Beijing and, and the way that the different aspects of the city, the different parts of the city, north, south, east, west, have different characters. I mean, obviously, a lot of those, you know, the, the temples and other spiritual sites in the west are no longer there. But even at somewhere like Baba Shan, um, the revolutionary cemetery, which is out in the west, that has a, a heritage. You know, it was a, it was a temple before becoming a sort of retirement home for eunuchs, and then before it became the revolutionary symmetry. So I, f- I felt sure. that the West had had quite a lot of interest to me. So Jonathan, let's start with the uh, Baba Shan. So what is it? And uh, what's the connection with uh, Peng De Huai to the location? Sure. So Baba Shan is uh, China's uh, sort of national cemetery. Um, and it was established in the 1950s. Zhou Enlai decided that uh, the CCP, the, the party needed to have a place to bury their uh, revolutionary martyrs, um, and it had previously been, as I said, a, a temple and then a, a retirement home for, for eunuchs. Um, and the story is that the eunuchs were were sent on their way um, with their genitalia, which had been preserved, and yeah, sent off to a, to live somewhere else. Um, and the some of the temple buildings mm-hmm. remain, um, and then the rest of the land was was. Um, given over to become a, a cemetery. It's an interesting place because as you walk in, it feels, A, it's incredibly peaceful. It's, Babashan means eight treasure hill. And this hill actually extends over quite a big distance. Um, and there's a, a, another cemetery uh, attached to it, um, which, which is um, sort of open to public and overseas Chinese. So it's incredibly peaceful, you know, in, in this big bustling city. Um, and it has these ranks of gravestones that run up the hillside, um, starting at the bottom with the sort of foot soldiers of the revolution. And then as you get higher up the hill, you come across these much more grandiose uh, tombs dedicated to, you know, more important members of the party, essentially. And I had come looking for Peng De Huai, who was military man of the party, uh, born in Hunan about the same time that Mao was, um, had come up through the ranks, been an important part of the PLA, uh, was China's defense minister in the, in, in the 50s, and then had famously fallen out with Mao. There was talk that they had an antipathy anyway, Mao and Peng, somebody referred to them as two bad-tempered mules from Hunan. Um, and there are also stories mm-hmm. about how Mao's son, uh, who was in the care of Peng during the Korean War and was killed, uh, that Mao somehow, a lot of Chinese people who speak to them, they, they, they say, oh, that's that's why uh, Mao goes for, for Peng in the way that he does. But essentially in 59 at the Lushan conference, Peng Dehuai raises some objections and, and concerns about the Great Leap Forward, which is sort of a year old at that point. He had seen, he traveled around and seen the famine that was affecting the countryside. And uh, Mao takes this, as he often did, uh, criticism very badly and um, exiles Peng from the leadership. Uh, he sends him out from Zhongnanhai, the leadership compound where, where they lived. And he spends the next four or five years on the periphery of, uh, you know, out in, out in Western Beijing, actually. And in 1965, Mao finally tries to bring him back in. Gradually, sort of uh, the idea that he might be rehabilitated is put forward. He's sent to Chengdu, where he works uh, in a fairly low-level position for, for a year. And then, of course, the Cultural Revolution hits, um, and he's brought back to Beijing, and he is you know, forced to take part in struggle sessions. He becomes very ill uh, during this. And his story, in some ways, is similar to Liu Shaqi, um, you know, denied medical treatment, and he ends up in the 301 hospital, Beijing 301 hospital, which is just, uh, you know, out in the west, just south of Chang'anjie, and dies in the in 1973. And his ashes at that point are then sent to uh, Chengdu, which is a city have very little to um, uh, to do with. And 
they're sent under a pseudonym um, and kept in a suburban funeral home. And this is where he seems to, you know, to, to be for, for, for posterity. Of course, then in 76, when Mao dies and the Gang of Four are arrested, Pung is one of those that is rehabilitated by Deng Xiaoping in 1978. And they have a funeral service for him and his ashes are returned from Chengdu and they are interred in Columbarium in Babashan. So I went looking for Peng Dehuai and I, his story seemed to me that a sort of nice metaphor, maybe not a metaphor, but a kind of, it, it told the story of the Cultural Revolution in a way that was was very human. And, um, you know, one of the, some of the little details, the fact that when he was cremated, they cremated him with the sort of 60 odd books that he'd read in captivity over the last few years. And so I wanted to tell his story as a way of, of humanizing and telling the story of the Cultural Revolution. But then when I got to Babashan and I was walking around looking for some sign that he was there uh, i would asked a couple of the you know the guys who were doing the you know sweeping the paths and they said oh yes he was here but he had been in 1999 sent back to hunan and this kind of told the next phase of the story if you like because red tourism this tourism of you know visiting significant sites in party history has become such a phenomenon over the last decade or so as sort of part of this Pung had been returned to hunan this mausoleum and and uh, tomb had been built and now you can go and pay your 35 yuan and go and visit this uh, you know this site dedicated to, to mm. his story so uh, yeah it was a shame i mean I, i'd gone with the intention of you know using Peng Dehuai as a kind of um, way of telling this story, but had no idea that that was going to be the, the, the last, the last bit of his narrative, if you like. Um, so let's, let's keep going on down the street. Next, we hit the military museum. Uh, what are your, uh, what were your impresses of, of that place? Yeah, well, it, it was, it was closed. I did the walk in 2016 and, and uh, it was closed then. Oh, it wasn't well, open Yeah, again, and it had been closed for, I, I think since maybe 2010, 2011. It's only been a fair old while that it had been closed. I did, I, I, well, I went back um, last year, perhaps, um, just literally after it reopened. Uh, and it was, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, they spent a lot of money uh, on, I find Chinese museums fascinating and wherever I go, I try and go and, and, and visit uh, the sort of local provincial museum or city museum um, because I'm really interested in the way that the CCP frame their history. And I think the military museum is a, is a, is a very good example of, of that. It's such an odd idea in a way that you would memorialize in this grandiose uh, fashion, the sort of military history of the country. It's incredibly militaristic and nationalistic. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, w- when it was closed, they had some of the old uh, sort of military equipment, tanks and things outside, including the wreckage of a 1962 US drone that had been shot down. And that now is in this grand hall in uh, in the centre of the building. It was one of the 10 great buildings. So one of the things that Chang'an Jie does is it acts as a showcase um, in the late 1950s for um, these 10 great buildings, as they're called. Not all of them are in Chang'e, but many of them are. Uh, so what is now the National Museum being an, another example of it. Uh, this sort of grandiose um, socialist realist architecture um, and the military museum is, you know, it's very much in that in that Soviet style uh, with a spire and a, and a star on the top. What really struck out to me um, going to that museum was how little history there was in it. Um, you know, basically there were like, okay, like we shot down this drone and like that kind of looks cool. Um, it was not a drone. It's like a whatever, one of these like a like a spy yeah, airplanes, yeah. right? And then there are these there are these like enormous oil paintings that have like special effects. So like smoke puffs out of the the um uh, the tanks or whatever. But you know, there's no um. You know, there's the, China, like a lot of people have died fighting in the mm-hmm. PLA over the past, um, you know, 70 years. And and the fact that like that isn't they're not even trying to tell that story, um, but just sort of kind of have like arms from every era. Um, it was almost like a military parade yeah. condensed into a museum as opposed to a museum that was trying to like educate the populace and even tell a story. I, I, I just thought it was very fascinating how like they weren't even going to try to go in that direction well yeah and i think i mean the fact that they play the loops of the uh, of the annual october 1st parade 
uh, you know, there's a sort of big room uh, dedicated to, to, to that event. Um, it is very much of a piece um, with that. And I think that the idea of the denial of the human is interesting. And in some ways, I mean, Baba Shan, one of the nice things about it is you do feel that sense of the human sacrifice, you know, this, this sort of vast uh, cemetery in a way that you don't in very many other parts of, you know, museums or memorials. And I was in Wuhan over the summer and there's a flood memorial there, um, which is for the victims of, well, theoretically for the victims of the 1954 floods there. Um, but it's got a poem by Mao on it, you know, and it's got a picture of Mao on it. And actually it, it's all about the glorious sort of socialist struggle against water without acknowledging the, you know, hundreds of thousands of people who died in, in, in the flood. So I think that's, you know, it's, it's something that they have a, a fairly st- a strong track record in this sort of denial of the human sacrifice. The one thing I was I was bummed out with recently, um, this is not apropos of too much, but in the Guangzhou Museum, they have a contemporary Guohua and Shufa exhibit. And um, the intro was basically like learning from Xi Jinping, <laughs> like look at how we're like culturally confident yeah. and, you know, behold these new works of uh, painting and calligraphy and like be proud of China. And I was just like, really? Like they're painting like birds and 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 you know mountains and like this is this is really where we have to go with this but i don't know it was kind of a bummer and it wasn't even that good too there were a lot of like happy ethnic minorities it was just just such a letdown um okay but so so keeping going on down this street we come to the uh the beijing museum which you use as an excuse to talk about the history of the city uh, yeah, so uh, the Beijing Museum theoretically is there to uh, tell the history of, of the city. Um, and uh, I think one of my favorite things about this museum is that they, at the top floor of it uh, is they have built um, a like mock-up of the old hutong. And the introduction to this, like the placard says something about, you know, the great the great treasure of Beijing are its alleyways, its hutong. And then you think, well, yes. And if that's the case, then, you know, why are there so few of them left? And what, you know, why have you had to build, you know, a a reproduction of them on the sixth floor of this museum? Um, So it's worth going and, and, and checking that out. Which I'm sure was, which I'm sure in the process of being created itself was demolished. Well, yeah, I mean, and there's this stuff in there. There's a memorial arch, for example, a, a pilo, which is taken from, you know, one of the streets not far away from it. And it talks in the, in that placard about how this was, you know, one of the most beautiful street scenes in Beijing. And, um, and you think, well, yeah, you know, maybe you should have left it where it, where it was rather than putting it in the foyer of this, of this slightly sterile, Museum. I mean, the, the building always reminds me of some sort of airport terminal. Um, uh, I'm not a huge fan of, of the of, of the museum, yeah. I have to say. But yeah, I just do its best to try and tell the story um, of Beijing, and there's always a little bit of narrative distortion with any of these with any of these stories. Because I mean, Beijing is a strange place to have a capital city. In many ways, um, it's an accident of history. I mean, I suppose that you could say that of all capitals, but there's no river there. Um, it's a pretty arid plain on which it sits, um, and it ended up there really because it was convenient to the, uh, you know, the, the nomads from the north who ended up invading and and uh, and conquering parts of China. So um, it does tell some of that some of that story. The narrative basically starts with a Kublai Khan, uh, the son of Genghis Khan, who rolls through. Uh, he does a number with it. Um, you have a quote from someone who a few months after the Mongol invasion says that he saw, quote, the bones of slaughtered forming mountains, the soil greasy with human fat. Um, but I guess someone cleaned it up because uh, a few months later, Kublai Khan decided that, you know, actually Beijing was all right and then decides to turn it into yeah, and I mean that's the late the late thirteenth century. So um, the the, sl- the glorious slaughter, as it's called, which you describe, is sort of early twelve twelve fifteen uh, when Genghis Khan rolls in, and then it's later in that century. Uh, it's established as the capital of, of the Yuan, the Mongol Yuan dynasty. I mean, actually, it doesn't really last very long because, of course, then the Ming take over. Um, and it looks at that point like actually Beijing's not going to be the national capital because Nanjing is chosen um, and, and there's a palace there. Um, but the internal politics of the family mean that essentially the younger emperor, as he would become, 
goes to Nanjing, torches the palace in, in Nanjing, and then restores uh, Beijing as the capital. And it's actually uh, the Yongle Emperor who is responsible for a lot of the architecture that we take as you know the historical vision of, of Beijing today. Um, and it has remained there ever since. It's actually interesting. If you go to Nanjing, you can go to the site of the old Ming Palace, which there's very little there. It's a public park. Uh, it was burnt down then, and then it was subsequently burnt down. I think a couple more times over the over the over the centuries, um, and you get this mm-hmm. sense of of you know the, the, the strange moments, the crossroads of history, and um, this this should have been and could have been the, the site of the capital. Um, and of course, Nanjing, you know, the capital does return to Nanjing in, in the in the twentieth century with the nationalists, uh, but Beijing just seems to have this power where it pulls it pulls it back, and it's an odd choice in the, in a way for the CCP because of course they've come to power setting themselves against the feudal past. Beijing is, you know, the definition of, of the feudal past, you know, it's the spiritual and political yeah. capital of, uh, of the imperial dynasties. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an odd choice in some ways f- for them um, to alight on. And of course, that's part of the motivation that the CCP have for so radically transforming the city in the, in the 50s and 60s. So turning uh, eastward, Musidi, what happened there? Yeah, so uh, the Capital Museum is kind of uh, right on that, on that intersection. And one of the stories that I was inevitably going to tell was that of uh, Chang'anjie as a site of protest. Obviously, that's commonly been centered on uh, Tiananmen. And, you know, in, in, in the narrative of those protests, we can go back to May 4th, 1919, the protest that was centered then, of course, not on Tiananmen Square because the square did not exist at that point, but just on at Tiananmen Gate. Uh, at that point, the square is this sort of T-shaped, um, uh, broad sort of alleyway that leads up from Tiananmen to uh, to Tiananmen uh, itself. Um, and over the years, th- that central point of Beijing has been a, a site of protest, but so has the entrance to Zhongnanhai, Xinhuaman, the, the gate that leads you into uh, the leadership compound at Zhongnanhai. Uh, which Yuan Shikai established, um, and the Mushi Di, which is which is still quite a way out uh, to the west from the centre. This was the site uh, of one of the first pitched battles in um, the in the protests that were quelled on on June June third uh, and the morning of, of June fourth, and um, it's the point at which the barricades have been built across the street there, uh, and the PLA arrive. Uh, it's about eleven pm. Um, on, on, on the evening of June 3rd when they arrive there. Um, and it's at this point that people start to realize that they're going to be using live am- ammunition. Um, there's an account from um, John Pomfret, the journalist who was there, um, and he talks about the PLA shooting low, hitting people in the legs and stomach, and then people initially thinking they're firing rubber bullets, but realizing as the blood pools on the street that this is actually live ammunition. And the PLA, I mean, the, the, the street, Chang'anjie, from both east and west is the one of the main ways the PLA roll into town. And of course, by the time they get to the square, um, a, a retreat has been negotiated. So actually very little um, of, of the fighting happens on the square itself. So it was a tricky one for me. I didn't want that story as important as it is to dominate the book. And I felt it was something that people already probably knew. Um, but I did, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's a necessary uh, and, and very important part of the street story. Sure. And of course, links to that idea that I talked about at the beginning, the irony of the street's name. Joan Anhai, what is it and why is it now, as you call China's true forbidden city? There's lots of spaces along, um, uh, well, across Beijing and along uh, Chang'anjie that are, that are hidden spaces. Um, I tried to get into Diaoyutai, which is the old state guest house, um, where foreign leaders will come and, and, and stay. And, and you can now actually uh, actually pay to go. It's incredibly expensive. Um, that's just just to the north of, of the street. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's, there's all these sites. There's loads of military sites dotted along the western edge of, uh, of the city as well, um, all of which, if, if, if you've been a tourist in Beijing, um, you will likely have had that experience of walking past, sort of slowing down, thinking, oh, I might take a photo of this, and then some guard coming up and saying to you uh, that you need to move along. Uh, and I suppose the sort of, yeah, the number one most protected site along uh, Chang'anjie is Zhongnanhai, which is the uh, leadership compound 
Uh, so sometimes compared to, you know, sort of China's White House, but it's actually a vast uh, area, which used to be part of the Imperial City. It was an Imperial Park. Um, and it has a sort of large lake. Um, and I mean, it, the name actually means middle and middle and southern uh, lakes. Um, and these sort of villas dotted around. Um, and I mean, I find these sorts of places incredibly alluring. I think hidden places always have that that power. Um the screen wall that you see as you walk past, um, you know, you have to keep moving fairly quickly and, and the security is tight on that stretch of the street anyway. You're likely to have already been stopped and had your identity checked at this point. Uh, but there's a screen wall uh, which blocks the view of uh, the lake behind and any of the buildings, uh, which is written in Mao's calligraphy. And it says, serve the people, which I always think is, is again, somewhat ironic, uh, given that the wall is literally blocking any any sight that people might have of this of the mechanics of power within um mm. in the book i talk quite a lot about the way in which um there's a very good and, and engaging account of um some of the 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 years of Mao's rule that we, we otherwise don't have very much uh, first-hand um, knowledge of by Li Jiasui, who was, who was Mao's private physician. And he talks about some of the strange habits that Mao slips into as he, you know, lives behind the walls of, of Zhonglanhai. Um, you know, even even quite small things. I mean, he's, he loves swimming uh, and eventually moves into, they have, there's, a, there's an indoor swimming pool in Zhonglanhai, eventually moves into the building where the swimming pool is so that he can, uh, you know, be there more regularly and he would often summon you know other leaders to come and see him as he was splashing around in the water um but other other more sinister aspects of his of his behavior towards um young women um and the the idea that he was almost psychologically slowly changing into an, an emperor you know he would have there there was a room, a bedroom built off one of the ballrooms and he would uh, you know sort of choose a girl to take off into the bedroom when they had social gatherings there, um, never famously never brushed his teeth, would just swill his mouth out with green tea every day. So over time, his teeth take on a sort of greenish tinge. Um, and eventually, the, 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 he has a, a sexually transmitted disease, which he passes on to the women that he sleeps with. And, and apparently, they hold this as a sort of badge of honor because it shows that they've been chosen by the great helmsman. Mm. I mean, I mean, the, the book is the book is worth reading. There is dispute to some extent. I, I, I tend to think that that um, the bits that are likely to be less truthful are when the, the doctor sort of puts himself at the, in the middle of some of the big historical decisions. Uh, that seems to me to ring less true. But I think um, the anecdotes about Mao are well worth uh, reading. It's quite a long book. Um, uh, I think it's called The Private Life of, of Chairman Mao by Li Jiasui. Um, but yes, this idea that these these places had a sort of innate corrupting power. Uh, Mao famously, although I'm not sure whether I believe this, uh, never went into the Forbidden City itself. Um, I find that hard to, to believe, but that is that is the myth anyway. So now we come to the Forbidden City. Uh, you know, there's so much you could have done with this chapter. How did you settle on the stories that you... Um, uh, I think I found this the hardest section in, in some ways to decide how I was going to approach because I had an idea with Tiananmen and the Square, the idea that over time, this is a place, you know, that if you go to it, you sort of feel like it must have been ever thus, you know, this grand granite rectangle uh, imposing buildings all around uh, and one of the things i wanted to to sort of talk about was the the transience of you know china has such a long history uh, and this idea of the transience um to some extent of that of that of of power and i quote a, a poem which talks about uh, by by du fu about who knows what the, the long years will bring it's amusing on the transience of of power as the, the the narrator of the poet poem comes across a a palace that is now in ruins and so i wanted to talk a little bit about that idea and there's a a, a nice story about the beginning of the republican years Two workmen are sent to take down the sign that hangs on the Great Qing Gate. Now, this is where Mao's mausoleum now sits in Tiananmen Square, uh, because obviously the Qing are no longer and they need to take the sign down. And they go and they take the sign and they think, actually, you know what, we won't get rid of this. We'll put it up in the roof of the building because who knows what's going to happen. You know, this was, these were tenuous times. Um, yeah. I mean, Yuan Shikai does try and bring back, you know, a bit later the, uh, 
uh, you know, declares himself to be emperor. So they think, well, we'll just store it away just in case. And so they take it up into the loft of this, uh, of this gate and they find in the corner, uh, the sign that had previously hung there, uh, during the Ming dynasty, which says great Ming gate, because, you know, the previous workmen sent to do the same job at the end of the, uh, the Ming, at the beginning of the Qing, it had the same thought, you know, who knows what the long years will bring. And so I wanted to talk about that and the, the idea, yeah. of, particularly with Mao's mausoleum, the debates that have gone on over the years about, do, do we keep him there? And I think that's a really interesting question that as time goes on, that mausoleum also disrupts the, the space of Tiananmen in, a, in, a, in an interesting way. It's sited on that north-south axis, which is so central to um the 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 history of the city um this is the and in a way my walk is a subversion of that because actually the important the important axes in chinese history are the north south axes um Chang'anjie is kind of a, a contradiction to that in being built west to east by the communists um so sure. I, I wanted to explore that idea with Tiananmen, but the forbidden city sort of resisted me being clever with it in in, in that way i it kind of is what it is mm-hmm. um and if you visit it, it's very much um, hi- not history as narrative, or it certainly didn't used to. I think it has improved um, in the last few years. Um, but the, uh, you know, I tended to find when I would visit, you would see both Chinese and Western people sort of standing around, f- feeling like they should be experiencing something, but not quite knowing what it what it is. So I ended up essentially deciding that I was going to pick four days in the palace's history um, just to try and tease out some of those individual stories that that lurk there. I mean, it's such a rich and resonant place in terms of its history, um, but I was never going to be able to, you know, that's a, that's a whole book in and of itself. And so I sort of picked these, picked these four days. Um, the first being when the Empress Dowager returns to uh, Beijing after she has fled at the end of the Re- Boxer Rebellion. Uh, the second uh, is the last day of the last emperor's um, inhabiting of the of the palace before he's kicked out by uh, a warlord who rolls into town in 1924. The third being um, at the very beginning of the Cultural Revolution, and the fourth being the day that I walked through it, which is you know significantly less historically important, but uh, I needed to have that first hand experience in there. So, well, I mean, you never know, exactly. who, who knows what the, what the years will bring. But I, I thought that by doing that, at least it gave a sense of um, the different lives that the, the palace had had, um, you know, as in 1902. By, by that point, obviously, the tail end of the Qing dynasty. And for me, the story of the imperial household having to flee the city is, is, is quite a moment in that decline. Um, and she comes back, the Dowager Empress does with the emperor, um, and is, uh, you know, it kind of has to take her medicine to some extent um, and, and talks about, the, you know, the friendship that she wants to blossom between um, the household, the imperial household and, and, and the foreigners in the city. Um, th- for me, though, I think probably the most resonant story is that last day of, 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 the, of the last emperors um, living in the palace. He had been there. He'd been stuck there, essentially. So obviously the, the end of the, um, the Qing dynasty comes in, in 1912. He'd been stuck there for 12 years subsequently. Um, the leadership compound had been established then at Zhongnanhai. So Yuan Shikai had taken over that to be his presidential palace. And then uh, the last emperor is, is stuck in the sort of northern part of the Forbidden City and really, you know, not enjoying life very much at all. He talks about he'd, he'd lived there only since 1908. He, he comes um, when he's sort of nearly three years old. Uh, he talks about it being a tiny world in which he spent the most absurd childhood possible. And on the 5th of November, uh, 1924, uh, a warlord called uh, Feng Yuxiang comes into town uh, and tells him, look, time to go. You've got to pack your stuff up, be out in a few hours. Um, and he leaves and goes to, to his to his father's house uh, on the banks of Hohai. Um, and and that's the end of, of, of that, that phase. And then there's this remarkable story in his autobiography about him um, when he relocates to the Japanese legation, him taking his bike and cycling down to the old Forbidden City, which is now, you know, obviously 
you know, just immediately after he's left, closed up, um, and and sort of thinking about the place and 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 the idea that he might return one day there. So this incredibly ambivalent relationship that he that he had with it. I mean, the, the autobiography is is narratively flawed in in, in some ways, as, as many people will know. But I just thought that, that image of him cycling down Chang'anxie to come back and look at the palace and sort of muse on what it had meant to him was was really quite interesting. Um, I, and and for all the um, uh, young listeners out there who haven't seen The Last Emperor, um, uh, directed by uh, Bertolucci, released in 1987, Wikipedia is telling me is the first uh, Western featured film authorized by the PRC to film in the uh, Forbidden City is one of the, you know, the the very few really, really world class movies dealing with um, uh, uh, Chinese history and Chinese themes that I encourage everyone to pause the <laughs> podcast right now and spend three hours and just sit and uh, and soak it in. Yeah, go buy my book first, obviously. And then, I mean, the other book you could buy is that the Reginald Johnston, as a Reginald Johnston was his tutor. So a lot of the film is based on um, the the details from from that book. And, you know, Reginald Johnston had kind of first-hand access to the, to the Last Emperor for a long period of time. So that's very, his, his, his account of that period is very much worth reading, reading as well. Um, but then just the final date historically was, you know, 1966 when these huge rallies start happening in, in Tiananmen Square. And obviously an enormous amount of destruction happens during the Cultural Revolution to these historical sites in Beijing. And in the end, to safeguard the Forbidden City, Zhou Enlai has to intervene. Um, and actually a garrison of soldiers end up being stationed in, in the palace um, for, for some of that time. It's basically locked up because they, they want, you know, they realize that otherwise the Red Guards are going to get in and, and, and potentially destroy it. Um, and so that's, you know, we, we, owe, we owe Zhou Enlai uh, thanks really for protecting a number of the, the sites in, in Beijing from um, the, the worst forces of the Cultural Revolution and the Forbidden City being being one of them. So you pose this question, uh, does a surplus of history cultivate an indifference to it? Uh, I'm going to make you try to answer that. Well, it's supposed to be a rhetorical question, Jordan, so I'm not sure I should uh, uh, Well, I mean, my point was really <laughs> that, that over... Sure, I mean, you're from the sure, UK yeah. too, right? I mean, this is like, like, like you know, America. We don't have our, our, um, uh, you know, thousand year old castles and whatnot. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's it's, it's an interesting perspective, isn't it? And I, I was, uh, I live in, in Birmingham, uh, so the Britain's second city, but I live in a village called Bourneville, which some people will know. Uh, the famous chocolate company Cadbury built this village for their workers and it's now a conservation area so actually i live in a village that looks pretty much like it did when it was built in uh, the early, very early 20th century so it's a bit like some sort of agatha christie uh novel setting uh, as i look out from my window this morning oh um, wasn't this like a super like happy socialist story with Cadbury yeah exactly it's interesting obviously at the moment we're going through a, an election in which uh, this this question of what workers should be provided with by uh, their employers is is pretty pertinent and yeah cabris were quakers and and they um paid for this village to be built for their workers lots of green spaces lots of places to play you know tennis uh, swim and uh these beautiful houses each of which was architecturally distinct so yes um i clearly i clearly place quite a lot of value in in the preservation of of those of, of you know of of the past, um, and I think that that question about does a surplus of history cultivate indifference to? It? I think that the danger with somewhere like China is that there's less uh, risk involved in chipping away at the history um, kind of incrementally because I think there is to some extent a perception that well there is there's always another there's always another hutong right you know as they as they as they tear them down until there's not and of course now we've reached a point where very little of that um old beijing exists still what does exist um the the hutong in the northern reaches of the of the city have now been sort of tarted up um slightly disnified um and turned into into spaces that are much more sterile than they had become um you know a lot of the a lot of the people who lived and worked there have been kicked out um of those of those old alleyways and uh, the city is 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 preserving that area but that's the last fragment of it and what they're doing to it i think is um is a little bit questionable so um the reason i pose that question in the book is because um 
I'm at the site of uh, a big mall called uh, Oriental Plaza, um, where which was a very controversial building project when it was undertaken in the 90s in Beijing. And one of the things they discover is they're building or excavating um, to build this mall are all these Paleolithic remains. And they're like, oh, you know, what, what do we do with this? Uh, and if you go to the mall, you can actually go this right at the bottom, you know, like tucked away as, uh, you know, in this corner of the mall is the Paleolithic Museum where some of these remains exist. Um, but they didn't think, oh, maybe we should stop and, and, and spend a bit of time excavating this properly uh, as an archaeological site they just thought well we've got a bit of you know we've got a few arrowheads and things and let's just get on and, and build this pretty pretty monstrous mall now i i know jordan you're you're a fan of chinese mall life so i, I don't want to say anything too controversial about <laughs> chinese malls but i think we're gonna we're gonna touch on that in a minute perhaps anyway are we so um there's this quote uh of lin-manuel miranda so he's been filming the dark materials yeah. in the uk um and he's up in cardiff and all the like like you know all like the londoner uh journalists they're like oh man like how's cardiff like it must be so terrible i don't know anything about cardiff but he's like he's like you know it's great like they got all these balls i'm so into it um so i mean maybe i'm just like because because also i'm i'm like lin-manuel from new york city i didn't grow up with like you know consumerism all just like bundled into four floors and very convenient but i understand that we 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 did this argument a few episodes ago um but i think the um the thing that's striking uh you know just comparing going back to comparing guangzhou and and um and beijing was in beijing there are just Hmm. walls everywhere um and particularly uh uh particularly like uh changanje is a really good example of it like for almost the entire street, there really isn't yeah. street life. Um, there aren't like sidewalk, you know, restaurants or people, you know, selling stuff. Uh, it, it's very, it's very sterilized. And at least walking around, uh, you know, the the, the western part of, of Guangzhou, not necessarily uh, the the CBD, but um, it was still, uh, you know, the streets were broken up, and it wasn't just like these giant kind of compounds that were walled off. And like when there are walls, there's no, um, hmm. there's no hmm. commerce. So like the street just gets that um, gets very dead. So, you know, on the one hand, this is a great project, but like there's a there's a way in which walking down Chang'anjie is kind of like the most boring street. Yeah, to no, walk that's, down. that's completely true. And uh, Simone de Beauvoir, when she visits um, Beijing in 1955, I think it was, she stays at the Beijing Hotel, which is on Chang'anjie. And she looks out the window and she writes, when they've demolished all the little gray streets, will all of Beijing look like? like this, like Chang'anjie, you know, because even then it was this sort of sterile highway. Um, and I think the, you know, increasingly the answer to that question seems to be yes. Um, as you travel around, um, to different Chinese cities, um, clearly the, the model of these, um, symmetrical, very broad highways, uh, running either west to east, well, generally west to east across an axis that comes down north to south. I mean, if you were in Guangzhou, presumably you went to the sort of that new central axis where the, where the, all the Zaha Hadid architecture is and the, and the tower, the Canton Tower at the end of it. You know, so this yeah. is something that, that, that form, which is actually very old, uh, the idea of the symmetrical city with a north south, um, historical axis. That seems to be the way that think things are, are going in urban planning. Um, certainly in the, in the big cities. Um, but it is devoid of, I mean, I, I, I talk in the book, I kind of got halfway through on the first day and I was like, oh man, I need to like have some lunch. And, you know, you're so used to, you know, I was so used to in, in, in Beijing, you know, like just on every corner there being somewhere, you know, not just good, but really, you know, really, really nice for, you know, f- for food. It's such a, you know, there's so, so many restaurants. It's such a densely, um, crowded city in terms of food, except for the, some of those, you know, parts of the, of the CBD and, and, and Chang'anjie where actually it's a lot of office blocks. You might find a Starbucks, uh, in a basement somewhere, but actually you're, you're, you're struggling. Um, and it did, yeah, you kind of, by the end of it, I kind of had got, I kind of had had enough of, 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 of the, of this imposing architectural style that, that displays itself along the street. Um, I mean, your point about the, 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 it being walled off in these large blocks is something that I think is absolutely, absolutely true. And that, you know, the World Bank have, have commented on this, that actually, um, 
so in metro around metro stations in Beijing, the, the size of the blocks around those stations were, were four times larger than the equivalent in New York, for example. So that affects walkability. Obviously, mm. if you know if the if the actual size of the city blocks are that big, it affects walkability and and it affects the likelihood, you know, the, the being kind of commerce and um, activity on those on those streets as well. Um, I mean, I talk in the book about the motivation of walking in cities. Walking in cities as a sort of aesthetic experience has has quite a long history. Um, I trace it back to the notion of the flaneur and Baudelaire and the idea of the crowd and the kind of electricity that being out in a city uh, uh, generates for the individual. But I've got to say that actually I'm not sure that was that evident to me on Chancantier, you know, occasionally you would come across a, a scene of of street life, um, you know, a knife sharpener, um, you know, doing his work on the street corner, for example. But on the whole, it did feel quite sterile for long stretches. Did I tell the story about playing ping pong with the old people uh, two episodes ago? Do you, I mean, tell uh, it again, Jordan. I, I, I haven't heard it. So, yeah. Uh, uh, so, Jonathan, I, I will say, you know, even though Chang'anjie isn't the best, like, just uh, a few weeks ago, I, w- I went over to like the Xiaochu next to mine, um, was was doing Chinese flashcards on my phone uh, when uh, like an old person walked up to me and was like, hey, we're like, we're all playing ping pong. Let's go play <laughs> ping pong together. So um, we end up we end up, you know, this ends up becoming like a yeah, three hour yeah. thing, of course. And uh, my favorite moment was basically it was like. 80 year olds um and then around uh, like an hour into it um a 60 year old comes by and the 80 year olds have been super polite to me and they're like oh like <laughs> america is so great whatever like we should be friends and they're just like you know chatting about my life and, and their lives and you know how they've all been living here forever and then a 60 year old guy comes down and you know starts feel a little obnoxious like america's a bad country yeah. trump's an asshole um you know america's no good china's yeah. getting more powerful and this was um during yeah. the time of the fourth plenum so the old people um pretty quickly start giving this guy all this crap being like hey you know the fourth plenum's still going on like why don't you go downtown and like see if they want to listen to you because like yeah. i'm sure this guy does it and then like he ends up like getting the hint and being a little apologetic and spends 30 minutes um being like all right like let, let's just like work on your backhand for a little while and he starts giving me all these tips and it was just like a very a very cute like little neighborhood experience which is um uh sadly less and less of a a, a thing but definitely i think there's um, there's really something remarkable, particularly about mm, uh, mm. old people in China, it, where, um, you know, even if there's just like a tiny, really not, it's, you know, these like parking lots um, that are that are not, you know, beautiful parks you can hang out of. But but there's there's still, I think, a, a big uh, emphasis on getting together in person, particularly for like a certain, you know, s- level type of old person. Um, which is really uh, pleasant, and uh, folks have been like fighting their way past the uh, the architecture, which doesn't necessarily facilitate that. Which I found really great. Oh, the other thing was in uh, uh, in Guangzhou. So they had uh, in the 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 Renmin Gongyuan. So in the center of the city, uh, there were four separate like knockoff um, KTVs um, where people would bring out uh, electricity generators yeah. and speakers yeah. and a little TV, um, and there were. F- they were all spread out and you could like, like sell you could like, like scan a WeChat and pay 10 quai and then you get to sing your own song. Uh, and this is just like such like a wonderful example of, 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 of kind of like public, uh, I don't know, like a, like a, like the use of use of public space. And I asked some guy and he's like, yeah, this is every once in a while and the police come around and they say we're too loud, but like we just keep coming back and like we're old, like they're, they're not going to give us too much crap. And I just thought that was so wonderful. I've never seen that one in Beijing. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's, yeah, that, but, um, uh, shout, shout out to Huang. You're Joe, right. Huang the, the, this the, the way in which public space is repurposed um, I mean it is it does still happen in, in Beijing I mean I, I think about the the square in between the drum and bell tower which had been has been re, redone but actually if you go there in the evenings it's full of it's full of life and uh, I think that on on the whole Beijing is you know that especially in, in 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 the in the warmer days of the year they'll be out you know selling themselves playing chess you know the the, the, the street life is still there but not on Chang'anjie, and, and partly, you know, you talk about the squares in most of the cities. I mean, it's true that um, they tend to be the centres where people congregate in, in in the evenings. But of course, Tiananmen—that is 
completely the opposite. It's it's devoid of any of that vibrancy and and, and life. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I quote in the book the, this essay that uh, was doing the rounds on social media in 2017 about Beijing having 20 million people pretending to have a life here. And and this is a, a blogger sort of writing from the perspective of a young person. And I think it is a gener- there is a generational difference. Uh, you know, the people you see out, out repurposing that public space do tend to be uh, you know, old, older people um, to some extent. And uh, the, the, I don't know whether you've read this essay, but uh, it was pretty critical. It t- talked about Beijing being a tumor. Yeah. Uh, no one can control how fast is it, it is growing. Uh, it's The city is too big, so big that it is simply not like a city at all. And, you know, if you're in a relationship with somebody who lives on the other side of Beijing, you're essentially in a, in a long distance relationship. So I think, I, I think from a, certainly from a young person's perspective, this idea of the city having become so fast that it fragments those individual experiences. I think, I mean, I, I do, I do have some um, sympathy with that point of view. That said, I think that the city is pretty resilient. And as you say, mm-hmm. you still see people kind of just taking advantage of whatever little corner of public space they can find to, yeah, do some dancing or, or, or yeah, play the Diablo or, or whatever it might be. Um, and I think that is, that's a pretty resilient spirit. Yeah. Two points. My first is uh, I love um, when I take friends around at a park and they see all these like like really like rotting chairs um, and mm. like abandoned office furniture that's just like in the middle of the park. My friends are like, what is this for? I'm like, yeah. it's for old people to sit in in the afternoon when they come here and hang out. And, you know, everyone's kind of like, OK, because, uh, you know, there's there's yeah. some like detente there. Right. With the um, uh, people who work in the park. Um, but the other thing I think is, you know, your point about the the sort of like young, gener- newer, younger and older generation fracturing. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think our generation, it's very much, um, you know, digitally focused and people are probably working more hours and whatnot. But I will say, though, that the, the what technology does enable people to do is is find people who are interested sure, in their yeah. very niche thing um, and be able to um, to meet up and, and cultivate it. Like, you know, there's there's this like rock climbing group I'm a I'm a I'm a part of. And, um, uh, you know, whenever I go to climbing gyms in Beijing, like everyone's like mm. really friendly and really chatty. Uh, and, you know, you see you see people like getting together and playing board games and, and, and you know, random Starbucks and these things I think would be harder to, to organize if, if not for the Internet, though. Um, I'm sure there are there certainly there are other kind of like trends in, in 2019, which are pushing people, um, you know, into more uh, solitary uh, lifestyles. But I think there's there is something to be said for, um, you know, maybe, OK, uh, if the only thing going around in your neighborhood is like, you know, square dancing, um, if that that's like your only <laughs> option, then you're kind of screwed. But um, the fact that you can sort of like reach out a little further and then connect with folks on, on online about more niche interests um, obviously has potential political downsides. But, um, you know, there's there's something to be said for um, being able to, to create. Yeah, those, sure. And um, the notion of what community is, is is changing, isn't it? And it's not about your geographical location anymore uh, in the same way that it was, you know, 70 years ago. And the same the same is true in, in, in England uh, as as in as in China. Um, and I think I, the thing I would say about that is that f- f- for me, uh, you know, as a sort of Western nostalgist about this um, trend, um, I do think that something has, you know, the, the, the greatest, most enjoyable parts of Chinese life f- for me living there were, that, that you know, being part of a, a community where I lived out in Western Beijing, for example, uh, and you would go down and the grandmothers would be there with the grandchildren and you felt this sense of, of the life on the street and the, the sterile new sort of apartment compounds sure. that they've built out on the edge of the cities. That, that, that There is something being lost, I think, there. Um, and I think it's interesting that they're repeating seemingly um, Chinese urban planners, some of the mistakes that happened in, in America and in, and in Britain, uh, the West generally, um, in the 20th century. And I'm, I'm disappointed that they haven't learned some of the lessons from this idea of, sort of the increasing atomization of life that happens um, as urban spaces spread out. Um, they don't seem to have learned the lessons um, of urbanization in the 20th century and sort of applied those um, to, to, to urban development in China in the 21st. Um, but maybe that will maybe that will change. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, I live in a very sterile apartment complex, and uh, every day when it's warm, I still see uh, grandparents with uh, with their grandkids playing out. Yeah. So that's sort of nice. Um, yeah, I think they, it does sustain, doesn't it? I think yeah. you're right. Yeah. Uh, 
So Jonathan, you both close and open the book with uh, the Shogong Industrial Park. So what is it and uh, why did you choose it to, to bookend the book? And what uh, do you think really stands out for you about the, the location? The, the, the park was the site of one of the biggest iron and steel works in China. Um, so about 200,000 people worked and lived um, around it. Uh, it's a vast industrial space. And when I first went, which was in 2012, it had just closed. So all of the architecture was still there. Um, and actually, as I was wandering around that day, we came across some architects who were there sort of planning what was going to be built in its place. Hmm. Um, and that debate went on for a long time. I was then back in 2016, by which time some of it had been raised. And this is when I sort of opened the book. Um, they've they'd blocked off the road because they were building a now completed bridge, which actually extends Chang'anxia another few kilometers out to the West. Um, but not, you know, there was still a lot of the old industrial architecture there. And there are all these plans in the Chinese media. It was going to be like some sort of high tech media city or you know, something to do with animation. And, you know, you, you, you learn to have a degree of skepticism about these, uh, these things. Um, and the people I talked to who lived in the local area had, basically no idea what was going on with it and and seemed to some to some extent indifferent um to this this project that was unfolding just across uh, across the road from them um since then it has you know its life has sort of settled on becoming the headquarters of the uh, 2022 winter olympics um and so the office buildings are actually there now they've taken over i think what were some grain silos they've rebuilt these into into some swanky offices uh but keeping you know keeping the old industrial architecture there and then the plan is uh that they are going to use this as one of the locations so i think the ice hockey is going to be there and certainly there's a snowboard ramp being built just on the edge of one of the cooling towers that they've left in place i went to the so, world uh, curling I, the, championships um where i did was, you yeah and and everyone thought I was a coach uh, because those were the only white people there. So I got to sneak into the nice seats. Yeah, and, and, and I, I have mean, really the, nice the, conversations the, with the Chinese national coach. Anyway. Is, is, is that apparently that's in an old coal workshop? Is that right? It seemed like a prefab building. I don't know. Uh, okay, yeah. I, I mean, the, the, so the reason I kind of start and end there is because the the story of the the plant itself is. Um, is a neat way of telling the story of sort of the industrial development of the city and the way that when Mao took over, he wanted Beijing to be an industrial city. Um, and over time, of course, that becomes incredibly impractical and Shogun becomes a, a, a huge polluter of the city. And that's why it's, it's eventually closed down. But it also tells that neat story about, well, what do you do with these spaces now? Um, and the traditional, well, not traditional perhaps, but in recent years, the way that, that China has tended to deal with uh, big new infrastructure projects is they just tear down whatever was there before, right? So they just they just raise the land and they build whatever they want to build. Um, and they seem to be taking a different approach with Shogun where they have left some of this industrial architecture in place and uh, almost used it to, as a feature of the, of the site rather than trying to demolish it. I don't know how much of that comes down to, I know that it was going to be very, very expensive to um, completely raise that site. For all, for all sorts of reasons, the estimates, you know, we're sort of running into billions of dollars. So whether there's a kind of cost benefit to leaving some of that stuff there, I don't know. But I think it's, I think it's a nice, you know, change in a way because that will still be there. People will still know that this was what that site was. And it was such an important industry for the people who lived f f way out to the west of the city. Uh, you know, all of the local families there had a connection to Shogun. That was, you know, that was the heartbeat of the of the suburb of Shijingshan where, where it is. So I think it's nice that that is there and that the, the history will, uh, that, that, that the part of that narrative will sustain. Um, whether that's something that's going to continue to be a trend where, um, where older uh, buildings are preserved and heritage is highlighted rather than destroyed. I think it's, I think it's hard to say, but it, you know, obviously it links to what they're doing in the uh, Hutong area um, where they seem to have stopped ripping down most of it and have started renovating it. But again, uh, you know, I have my reservations about that, but at least they're not tearing them down anymore. So I hear you've got a, you've got a new project in the works as well as a baby on the way. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how compatible the two things are going to be. <laughs> we'll find out in about in about in about three months, I guess. Uh, yeah, I so over the summer I was back in 
uh, China traveling around following the the journey that uh, Deng Xiaoping undertook as part of the Southern Tour in 1992. Um, for people who don't, I mean, this is something that it, it, in China is incredibly well known. Uh, essentially, it was a, a journey that Deng took in retirement in order to revisit some of the sites of um, economic transformation, uh, in particular Shenzhen, and really kind of make the case that China needed to carry on on the uh, on the road of, of reform and opening um, that he had he had started. Um, it comes at a politically tricky time for China, obviously just a few years after uh, Tiananmen. Um, and the debates around what direction China should go in are, are still very live. And really, Deng puts those debates to bed um, through the Southern Tour, which gets an enormous amount of publicity, not whilst he's on it, but when, once he has come back. Um, and really, yes, sets China on the path that, that, it, that it then is on uh, through the rest of the 1990s and into the 2000s. And I, I think it's an interesting period. I think that it's not something that there's lots written about. And I, I find... What is written about it often? Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of mythology around reform and opening inevitably um, as this sort of period in which China reasserts itself on the global stage, um, and some of those uh, myths end up being recycled. Um, so, for example, with Shenzhen, I'm, I'm working on that section of of it at the moment, and this idea of the fishing village to mega city, which you just see. In every pretty much every article I read, uh, Chinese or, or, or Western recycles this myth, which is actually just not true. The, you know, the, the fishing village um, bit is just it's just yeah, an oversimplification of the narrative uh, would be a kind way of, of putting it. So yeah, the idea is to tell that story, perhaps to um, get get away from that sort of um, traditional uh, mythologized narrative of a reform and opening period. Um, and I, I'm working on it as a book, but I'm going to, first of all, uh, do it as a podcast, talk to some people who are more expert than me in the places that I'm writing about and kind of go off and see, see where the, uh, see where those train tracks take me um, in exploring that, that journey and some of the, uh, and some of the issues that it, it it brings up Jonathan. That sounds uh, fantastic. Looking forward to uh, to reading and listening to your uh, future project. Thanks so much for being a part of China Econ Talk. Uh, thanks for having me. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo, and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from Sup China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. So my in-laws just called to let us know they're on the way over and we're out of food. Great. Luckily, Instacart helps me get groceries delivered in as fast as an hour. Plenty of time to cook an in-law-worthy meal. Now, what to make? Chicken parm. Perfect. Download the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get $20 off your first order using the code PREPARED20. Now the only thing to worry about is dinner conversation. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $35. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply.